0: You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today.
1: This is Episode 8.3, Rubble Landscape, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan and inadvertent Bernard Mancha cosplayer. I can't help it, that's just how I look.
0: (laughs) You could shave the mustache. Never. (laughs) I wouldn't want you to. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust Memory and trying to remember when I last had this strong of a reaction to a side character. I am having Slegger Law flashbacks. (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 718 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all and special thanks to our newest supporters, John Jack, Isaac B, and Kendrick V. You keep us Genki. An extra special thanks to those of you who used to subscribe, cancelled for a while, and came back this week, and those of you who've recently increased your pledges. In return for keeping the internet on and the Gundam Blu-rays spinning, Paid subscribers get a bunch of fun benefits, including early episode releases, access to an exclusive Discord, bonus content, and merch. Check out the full list of benefits and support MSB today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week's episode is a short one. I had to have a minor surgery this week and spent some time recovering afterward, but this early in the season, and so recently back from a long hiatus, we really didn't want to skip a week, so instead, we've decided to release this week's episode without a research segment. I'm already feeling much better, and next week's episode will be back to normal.
1: This week we are covering 0083 episode 3, Shutsugeki Albion. Its translated English title is Into Battle, Albion and its original English title was Irregulars in Albion. Episode 3 was released on VHS and Laserdisc on June 27th, 1991, and like all the other W83 episodes, it retailed for 4,660 yen. Kase Mitsuko and Imanishi Takashi remain in the credits as co-chief directors. The assistant director and storyboard artist was Watanabe Shinichiro, who had started as a production assistant on SPT Leisner in 1985, before working his way up to assistant director on episodes of Dirty Pair, Armor Hunter Mellow Link, and more in the late 80s and early 90s. He doesn't have many credits on Gundam, just 0083 and a few storyboards for later projects, but he would go on to become a famous director in his own right, overseeing Cowboy Bebop, Samurai Champloo, Space Dandy, Carol and Tuesday, and more. This episode also introduces a new character, Federation pilot Bernard Moncha, played by the voice actor Chafurin. Chafurin, that's a mononym, is a prolific voice actor with recurring roles in big tentpole franchises, like Detective Conan, Crayon Shinchan, and sazae san This is his first stint on Gundam, but he'll be showing up again about once or twice a decade. He seems to have enjoyed his time working on 0083, At least enough that when NHK did a big poll of Gundam fans to determine the most popular series, characters, and mobile suits a couple of years ago, Chafurin went on Twitter to stump for his own personal favorite, the Jim Custom, as piloted by Mancha in this episode. Now, let's hear that recap.
0: and Keith return to Torrington Base, the ruins full of chaotic but purposeful activity. The wounded are tended, ships and mobile suits are repaired, the nuclear storage is guarded even more heavily than usual. Bracing for a reprimand, Cole is surprised when Captain Synapse tells him to rest. Though Keith is flying high, almost giddy with released tension, Cole dwells gloomily on Alan's death and on his inability to recapture the Unit 2. Three new pilots arrive, reinforcements for the ongoing pursuit of Gato and the stolen Gundam. Monsha, Edel, and Bate are all veterans, former comrades of Lieutenant Burning, and full of bravado, certain that one of them will be chosen to pilot the Unit 1. The most abrasive of them all, Monsha drinks constantly, harasses every woman in sight, and is outspoken in his disdain for the talentless rookies who let Gato get away. Given his dark mood, Cole is the first to admit that if it weren't for the support of the senior pilots, he'd probably have died. Yet Nina rushes up to contradict him. She's been analyzing the Unit 1's combat data and is impressed with his performance. Moncha already seemed to enjoy insulting and goading Cole, as if he were spoiling for a fight. And now that he feels himself in direct competition with Cole for both the Unit 1 and for Nina, things come to a head. He challenges Cole to a mobile suit paintball duel. They head out into the desert accompanied by Adel, Beit, and Nina. Chasing each other around and through, the skeletal remnants of the colony drop. It's all Cole can do to dodge Monsha's attacks, and more than once, Monsha has victory in his sights only for random chance to snatch it away. Finally, Cole is trapped in a fall of rubble when part of the ruin collapses. Relishing his imminent victory, Monsha advances, but Cole isn't ready to give up. He uses his rainiers to kick up a thick cloud of dust, obscuring his position. After he gets free, he sneaks up on Monsha, tackling the other mobile suit through a wall. By the time Monsha realizes what's happened, he is looking up at Cole's paint rifle. Lieutenant Burning, legs still in a cast but dragged from his hospital bed by Keith, arrives furious with all of them for their recklessness and irresponsibility. Both Cole and Monsha are punished with one week of solitary confinement. In spite of that, when Captain Synapse requests that Lieutenant Burning join the recovery mission as commander of the mobile suit pilots, Burning's first question is, can I assign a rookie to pilot the Unit 1?
1: I thought this episode was fine. And if it were a weekly released free on TV kind of anime, that would be good enough for me. But if I bought this for a substantial chunk of change on a tape as my one episode a month after the extraordinary highlights of the prior two episodes, I would be left feeling kind of cold at the end of this. I know that this episode is doing a lot of very important narrative scaffolding. It's doing some heavy lifting and setting up presumably what's going to come in the next few episodes. But I really think that they could have done better.
0: Unfortunately, I think the proof of whether or not this episode was constructed in a way it kind of needed to be, and this one just needed to be a less exciting episode or not, uh, the proof of that is going to be in future episodes.
1: Well, let's run down what this episode actually does. I mentioned the the narrative scaffolding, and a lot of that comes down to establishing the stakes, setting out the path of what these characters are going to be doing over the next few episodes. They're going to be chasing Gato and the GPO-2 and the nuke. And it introduces these new characters, in particular Bernard Moncha.
0: The new characters, as well as... uh coming up with an explanation for how nina and orville Hmm. isn't that a setup for some excitement later why does
1: orville want to stay on the ship
0: get to stay with the ship that we are shifting our command center from the base to the albion
1: but given where we were coming from in the prior episode if they just jumped over this and showed us the Albion chasing Gato and Nina and Orville and Cole and Keith and Burning were all still on the Albion, I wouldn't be sitting here thinking like, how did that happen? Why are they still there? I I wish I saw the decision making process. That was the direction that things seemed to already be going in.
0: And it certainly would make sense. I actually quite like a lot of parts of this episode. It's just that as a whole, it doesn't completely work. You brought up stakes before and all of these aftermath shots, which feel heavily inspired by war photography, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. People being carried around on stretchers, men sprawled anywhere. There's a vaguely flat surface that's not covered in rubble. The wounded being given cigarettes by their friends. People just slumped any which place.
1: The hospital has been wrecked, and so they've set up a bunch of tents outside of the hospital to treat the wounded.
0: Totally overwhelmed by the number of people with everything from, you know, cuts and gashes to broken bones and, you know, damaged organs. And the same but for the mobile suits. You love the phrase mobile suit gore. Well, several shots... In the various kind of pans and montages of what's happening around the base include horribly damaged mobile suits. And there's like grease pooling around them or oil that looks like blood. Uh, the way they're being swarmed over is not dissimilar to, say, a surgical team, which can involve a dozen people hovering over one person.
1: Kind of reminded me of like a NASCAR pit crew.
0: Yeah. Speaking of things I did like in the episode, I still love the character design, Mm -hmm. the setting, the level of detail, how expressive they make the faces in particular. That hasn't changed. They didn't let me down there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No matter how much we might um, hate him as a person. Moncha, in particular, in this episode, clearly the animators loved that face. (laughs) They spend so much time just giving him goofy expressions and contorting his face into weird, monstrous postures.
0: Let's just jump in and deal with Moncha, since we have to.
1: You mean deal with him?
0: I wish. Uh, He's just so despicable. God.
1: He's... Yeah.
0: (laughs) He's such a terrible, obnoxious, nasty person that it is all you can do to get anything else out of the episode because he's such a big part of so much of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is Mancha's episode. Every episode has kind of had a void created by the fact that Ko is such a small, retiring person, such a minor character in his own show. He leaves a lot of space for other characters to step up and show off. And for the first two episodes, that space is filled by Gato. But Gato has stepped off the stage. He only has one tiny little scene in this episode. And in his place, we get Moncha.
0: From the very beginning, established, Moncha is a drunk. He walks around with a bottle of whiskey and is drinking constantly.
1: Wild Hawk Italian bourbon, which is not a real thing and is clearly based on wild turkey. Sorry, I just double checked. It's actually wild hawk Italian brandy, not bourbon. You can't read it in the episode itself, but I found some setting art that has a clearer depiction of the bottle. Italian brandy makes more sense than Italian bourbon.
0: He's not just flirting with all the women. He is like physically harassing all of the women, which is why Mora confronts him. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. His friends don't talk much, right? The the other two who show up with him who also know Burning from before, they don't say much of anything this episode, a line here, a line there. But they are forever making excuses for Monsha. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think they're actually any better than he is. I just want to get that off my chest because they either ignore what he does and just let him do whatever or they're making excuses for him to other people oh now now Mora like we know he groped a bunch of women but we're gonna have to work together for a while so maybe you should get over it
1: yeah they do occasionally say like hey buddy knock it off calm down
0: and then he keeps doing it and they don't do anything
1: exactly Moncha is the kind of guy who makes the people around him worse than they would be if he wasn't there like, I'm not saying that these two other guys, whose names, by the way, are Chap Adel and Alpha A Bait. Uh,
0: <laughs> so, Alphabet.
1: Uh huh. So, <laughs> and- Bernard Moncha, Chap Adel, and Alpha A Bait. I'm pretty confident at some point in the character design process, these guys were labeled pilots A, B, and C.
0: <laughs> Alpha, beta. <laughs> yep. Anyway. Yeah, They um. they don't make a great impression.
1: No. But if Mancha weren't there, they would probably come off as just fine. Their weakness relative to his strong personality turns them into his enablers, even if they are not the sort of people who would do these kinds of things themselves. Their inability to rein him in makes them look terrible. Obviously, he's responsible for his own actions, but that doesn't mean that they don't also have some responsibility here.
0: As much as I really really hated this character as a person. (laughs) Monsha does bring up a bunch of issues that seem like they could be important thematically. A lot of what he says about Cole is completely made up, horse-pucky, designed purely to be insulting. He doesn't know what he's talking about. These are just his like usual insults. Oh, you're a coward. You're a baby.
1: I bet you didn't actually fight Gato. You just sat there while other people fought him for you and you just probably ran away.
0: But all the comments about Cole's not good enough—that's what Cole is already thinking and feeling. Cole is already feeling that he's not good enough, as Keith so succinctly puts it. He's someone who needs a lot of time to get over things.
1: (laughs) God, it's so Cole is distressingly relatable. It's like a nineteen-year-old robot-obsessed, quiet kid who, when something bad happens, just kind of like retreats into himself and broods for a while. Couldn't be me.
0: And it comes out not just when he's talking to Keith, not just in the confrontations with Mancha where he says, you know, if I hadn't had help, I would probably be dead. But also when he first returns to base and he is bracing himself to be reprimanded. And when he's not, he almost looks disappointed. (laughs) Like like he felt like he deserved to be reprimanded. Mm -hmm. And again, when he takes the files, the information uh, cartridge or whatever from the Unit 1 to Nina... And he's so formal and so almost apologetic-seeming. Mora and Nina are both clearly surprised because they remember what he was like before, and he's just gotten to fight in this thing. But the experience has affected him very deeply in a way that's changed his behavior.
1: Especially coming out of the last episode, we have to look at Ko as a kid who is looking around for role models. And he's surrounded by all of these older men who offer plausible role models for him. Uh, In the prior episode, the focus is on Gato. Well, I don't think that Ko would look at Moncha and say, you know, that's a role model. Moncha is a model of masculinity, a model of an adult man, an experienced pilot, a veteran soldier, the kind of person that Ko could grow into, Mm -hmm. hypothetically.
0: But thematically, the conflict between Moncha and Ko gets at well, well, we'll see how it develops throughout the rest of the series. But I immediately thought of this kind of idea of generational replacement, you know, an older generation clinging to power hmm. while a younger is coming up behind them mm-hmm. or, or a younger, you know, trying to make space for themselves. In a world where the previous generation will not move out of the way.
1: And doesn't that call back to that conversation in the lunchroom in the first episode where they're asking Nina who's going to be the pilot for the unit one. And she's like, well, we're looking for somebody who can really push the new mobile suit to its limits. And I don't think you pilots of old generation mobile suits are going to be able to do that.
0: And related to this whole generational conflict... And, and the mobile suits specifically, but, you know, by, by rights, Monsha, with years of experience, if they were in the same mobile suits, maybe he would be a better pilot than Cole. However, there is a degree to which technology makes previous experience irrelevant. Hmm. Because if you have a new technology... There is no old person who's gonna have any more experience of that than a young person, right? Mm -hmm. And they might even have more difficulty with it. I know that's a stereotype, but it often bears out. And so there is this tendency to elevate experience, but new technology changes the equation.
1: As does essentially random chance. I mean, when Cole is ultimately triumphant in their game of mobile suit paintball, a lot of it comes down to the environment. Uh, The mancha has him in his sights, but then the ground gives way beneath him. Uh, Mancha's charging at him, but the debris falling all around slows him down. Just as with Lieutenant Allen in the prior episode, even the most experienced, skilled person can get killed while rookies manage to survive because they were slightly luckier.
0: Especially if those veterans are drunk and reckless.
1: (laughs) Fair point. To that point about generational conflict and the anxieties of an older generation about being replaced, remember what I said at the beginning of this season, this is a Gundam show largely being made by a new younger generation of creators uh, who have not previously worked on Gundam and may themselves feel a bit like Cole and Keith, playing with their Gundams under the watchful and not entirely benevolent eye of the older generation.
0: You could almost map generations of combat pilots to generations of animators in Japan.
1: (laughs) And yeah, maybe if they were in equivalent mobile suits, Mancha would have won. But as the mobile suits represent the bodies of the characters, Ko is like young and in the prime of his life. And so his mobile suit is fast and light on its feet and agile. Mancha, you know like us, is in an increasingly decrepit, creaking, aged body.
0: As Cole puts it, Monsha is entirely unremarkable, <laughs> extremely average.
1: Uh, this is a thing I think about a lot, actually, with the mobile suits, that older characters are almost always confined to these like slow, lumbering, mass-production-type mobile suits whereas young kids get the hot, fast, cool, slick, agile ones. State-of-the-art, new generation.
0: Coming at this from the other direction, it's pretty common knowledge that young people have faster reaction times and that our reaction times slow as we get older. And so if you have this incredibly fast machine, who is going to best be able to take advantage of its capabilities? Someone young whose reaction times are still lightning quick
1: no no i'm pretty sure i personally would be the best one to take advantage of it give me the gundam i promise i can be trusted with it i'm normal
0: is this what all the hours and hours of gbo2 have been about
1: (laughs) (laughs) when i saw mancha walk down the stairs of that plane i immediately thought he looks like a tengu tengu are these uh monster god creatures from japanese mythology They're winged, mountain-dwelling bird people, part monkey, part bird.
0: Something about the way he walks down the stairs with his arms kind of akimbo and his legs splayed makes Mm -hmm. him look a little like a a bird walking.
1: Yeah, when you see Tengu depicted that way as well, Um, he's got the big nose. Tengu always have a big nose, which is sometimes thought to be a, a phallic thing. He's vain. He's proud. He's aggressive he's violent, he's a strong warrior, uh, he's drunken and lecherous. These are all classic characteristics <laughs> of the Tengu type. But also, I think quite crucially, one of the things that the Tengu does in the mythology is Tengu interfere with the pious and the sincere, trying mm. to lead them astray. Uh-huh. Which is exactly what he does to Ko in this episode, isn't it?
0: It does feel like he's really spoiling for a fight. And if his behavior after he gets put in solitary for a week is any indication, he is very used to being in trouble.
1: Right. This is not the kind of guy who has a little punch up with you and afterwards you're his best friend. He resents Cole at least as much at the end of this as he did at the beginning.
0: And he's uh, much less distressed by being in trouble. Oh,
1: yeah. And in his sneering and the way he like kicks the wall, you can tell that he blames Cole for this. This is not a guy who has ever taken responsibility for his own actions.
0: Uh, one small detail. I don't know if it's significant, but I would like to think that it is. At the end of their fight, Cole manages to extricate himself from the rubble, comes out of all of the dust that he kicked up as a smokescreen, and tackles Moncha through a wall and outside to where he can point his gun at him. You may have noticed when Cole goes to Alan's room to deal with Alan's things, Alan is a huge, huge football fan and and football player. There's a jersey and a helmet in his room. There's pictures of him playing. There's pictures of him with football teams with a cheerleader who maybe was a girlfriend. This was a guy who was really into American football.
1: He's got a football in his room that has NFL on the side of it. I uh, am sure that that organization did not give its permission for that.
0: (laughs) And there are stickers on the locker. There's just a lot to it. And not that football is the only sport that involves tackling, but I like to think that Cole was inspired by Alan, perhaps. (sighs) Or trying to win one for Alan when he tackled Moncha.
1: Maybe so. That would be pretty cool. It is convenient of Alan to have, like two personality traits and to decorate his room with them he likes football and he likes hot girls
0: there is something really like a little i don't even know how to describe it it feels odd to have cole there so emotional beating himself up punching the wall angry sad despairing and there's a poster of a naked woman Mm -hmm. (laughs) like right behind him Mostly naked. I think she's wearing an open dress shirt or something.
1: (laughs) It's a tasteful nude. (laughs) Well, ditto later in the episode, Mancha has a pinup in his cockpit, which he very creepily pastes a photo of Nina over. The more so because Nina, it's like it's a creep shot. Nina was not uh, informed that a photo was going to be taken and did not want to be in that photo.
0: Yeah, it's very obvious that she did not wish to be photographed and did not pose for that picture. That was another thing about Moncha. Uh,
1: I promise I'll stop bringing us back to Moncha. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) I I mean, I don't know that we have a whole lot more to talk about in the episode, unfortunately. But uh, throughout the first two episodes, Nina, other than her inexperience of combat and her fear of that, which feels pretty normal, seems quite self-confident, quite just sure of herself. She knows that what she does is important and valuable and she's not especially deferential. She's not rude exactly, but she seems pretty comfortable with her position in this, you know, largely male-dominated field. But then you throw in someone like Moncha and it's clear she doesn't entirely know how to deal with him. She's uncomfortable, and she tries asking him nicely to go away and being polite, and that doesn't work, and then she tries being stern like she was with Cole, and that doesn't work, and she's a bit at a loss. She is not used to dealing with that.
1: (laughs) Well, Mancha is not someone who is easily put off, and that really flummoxes Nina. Probably the only effective way to deal with him is what Mora threatened to do and what Cole eventually did, which is just to beat him up to use superior physical force against him. You know, there's a there's a line between a character who you hate and a character who is fun to hate. And Moncha is straddling that line, stepping back and forth across it rapidly. Let me, if you don't mind, swerve now to a different topic from this episode. When Captain Synapse gets that call from Jaburo, one of the things that the Admiral Cowan mentions to him is Something about the Antarctic Treaty won't protect us from our own warhead. And this this rankled for me. This stuck in my craw because I'm not even sure why the Antarctic Treaty is still considered in force. This is a thing that comes up a lot with 0083 because in theory, the Federation developing a mobile suit capable of carrying a nuclear weapon could be a violation of the Antarctic Treaty. I don't think anyone has ever actually like written out the provisions of the Antarctic Treaty, so I can't go through them using my lawyer brain to figure out exactly what the rules are here, but it's often said that this would be a violation of the treaty. But a treaty is an agreement between two or more states and a bilateral treaty like this one between the Federation and the Principality of Xeon is just an agreement between those two nations. Xeon doesn't exist anymore.
0: Well, now it's uh, there, there's some kind of government in its place though, right? right.
1: There's a successor state called the uh, Republic of Xeon which means that this situation could be governed by the Vienna Convention on the Succession of States in Respect of Treaties, which was (laughs) agreed in 1978.
0: I love that you looked that up.
1: I studied international law and treaties a little bit in law school, and my memory is a little bit fuzzy, but again, fundamentally, this is an agreement between two states, one of which doesn't exist anymore. I'm pretty sure the treaty would be null and void. Maybe... DeLaz is out there claiming to be the legitimate continuation of the principality, in which case they would still be bound by the... Anyway, I want to know who DeLaz's legal advisor is, and I would like to talk to him about this, because I have serious doubts about the applicability of the Antarctic Treaty in 0083.
0: I, on the other hand, wondered why the submarine was still running with the uh, the red lights, because my understanding was that submarines run those lights during combat or combat adjacent type situation they're well away no one is currently chasing them
1: but nina if we don't have red lighting how will we know that they're on a submarine
0: because they show us the outside of the submarine before they show us the inside of the submarine (laughs) that's how film works (laughs) you want to just let yourself laugh he's doing these like tiny holding them in laughs I can see that I have struck the funny bone.
1: I was just trying to think of a funny rejoinder, okay?
0: The last word in comedy. And about half a day behind them, the Albion is also making for Africa.
1: They play uh, a tune when the Albion takes off. It's like a synthesizer instrumental remix of the melody of The Winner, the opening song, which is also the melody of Back to Paradise, the insert song that plays in the first episode. And I love this instrumental version. I love it so much, but I don't think it's ever been released. I don't think it's on either of the soundtrack compilations. I spent like an hour searching for it this morning and couldn't find it.
0: It's a very good cover.
1: Yeah, it's a bop. I would just like to jam out to this. And yet I am denied.
0: I was struck in that scene by how happy Burning is when he finds out he will be allowed to assign Cole to the Unit 1 if that's what he wants to do. Uh, He seems really, really, really pleased. (laughs) Uh,
1: burning who has been a pretty like stern and serious commanding officer type in the prior episodes now reveals that he's actually adorable the excitement he displays when his old buddies from the war show up
0: that was sweet that was nice
1: you guys
0: we're all still alive whoa yeah i just don't have as much to say about this episode uh i do have one final sort of nothing comment but i'm afraid it takes us back to Mancha, because Mancha helps us establish space noids do not understand earth seasons they do not understand the hemispheres they don't understand how any of that weather stuff works on a planet he walks off this plane furious that it's so hot out because isn't it winter <laughs> And has to have explained to him that they are in the Southern Hemisphere, and so December is hot, or whatever other month they're in that is winter in the Northern Hemisphere. It's
1: generous of you to assume that he's a space instead of just an idiot.
0: <laughs> we have precedent, though. This has come up in previous Gundam as an indicator that somebody doesn't know about Earth.
1: Yeah, but he could just be a fool who doesn't know about Earth.
0: He could, yeah.
1: Any pilot born before... UC-60, doesn't know hemispheres, all they know is drink Wild Hawk, (laughs) shoot they gym custom gun,
0: harass girls,
1: kick brig wall,
0: and lie. There was plenty of lying.
1: I have to say something nice about Mancha. I really like the way he's depicted in the cockpit because he pilots that mobile suit in a way nobody else does. He's like leaning forward over the controls like a DJ with turntables. Everybody else sits back in their chairs all proper-like, not Mancha. And like I was saying, clearly the animators have a lot of fun with this guy.
0: Here's a question. I assume Keith will be going with them, but there's a a moment when he's talking to Cole in this episode when it sounds like he assumes he won't be. (laughs) He's questioning why Cole would volunteer for this recovery mission, and Cole, of course, wants to redeem himself, yada, yada, yada. But this implies that they don't think all the mobile suit pilots will go along. And Keith does not want to go, does not plan on volunteering.
1: Ko is going because he feels obliged to Nina to recover the unit too. And because he feels obliged to Lieutenant Allen to avenge him, I guess, or to prevent further deaths of that kind to the best of his ability. And also he wants to prove himself to Mancha. And, you know, Ko has got a whole bunch of reasons I figure for Keith, it's just like he wants to look after his buddy or he doesn't want to be the one guy left behind.
0: I think they might just make Keith go, honestly, uh, because they lost Alan. They lost one guy before that. All they have is Burning, Cole, Keith and the three new guys. That's only six people. It's That's not that big a squad. And even if they sort of kept Keith in reserve and didn't have him patrolling or, or out fighting all the time, what good does he do them if he's all the way back in Australia and they're in Africa?
1: And for what it's worth, while Keith is clearly the like the best friend type, the buddy, the Hayato, not the main character, he's still a pretty talented mobile suit pilot. He still manages to survive and he even manages to take out that one Dom Tropin during the fight.
0: After it's cut the head off his mobile suit, which is very dramatic, he also has the presence of mind, even though he is the friend, to go get burning when he finds out about this ridiculous duel plan.
1: And we get one more really good scene of people in a jeep.
0: <laughs> people in a jeep having conversations.
1: <laughs> we will know that the show is going off the rails when there are no more jeeps.
0: I mean, once the Albion leaves, probably no more jeeps. I shed a single tear.
1: Nina, in the garage where the jeep used to be, punching the wall. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> Next time on episode 8.4, the danger is in a particular location. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 4, and... Pilots and mechanics are natural enemies, just like pilots and officers, and pilots and pilots. Darn pilots, they ruined piloting. I was right about Moncha's friends. Mora is going to kill a man, Jaro. Also, I love her.
1: Get in line.
0: While we're near Kilimanjaro, could someone give Moncha and co. the Jared treatment? Champagne, big game hunting, massive diamonds, and other Ziani things. Keith's bowels nearly save the Federation. Men will literally live in an abandoned diamond mine for three years instead of going to therapy. Ah, he really is just an idiot. And then Amaro, I mean Cole. Goad a prodigy into greatness isn't much of a plan.
1: Hey, don't knock it. It worked.
0: Add Astra. And... Team Xeon's blasting off again! The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours.
1: Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, Additional information about the Lenape people and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at gundampodcast or by email to hosts at gundampodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by Eric, and it's that the opening lyrics, I've got a burning heart, are actually a clever reference to the GPO-2's tendency to overheat Originally, the next chorus started, and I need a coolant shield.
0: You don't record the last part each time, you just use the...
1: Uh, well, I've, you know, I've been a little more informal with it this okay. se- this, this season.
0: Which is Sometimes fine. Sometimes
1: I just say things like, hey, send me your wrong Gundam opinions. Yep. Send, send me your wrong Gundam opinions.
0: You all have them. It's like being born canceled. Everyone is born with wrong Gundam opinions. <laughs>
1: Except me. <laughs> I am merely a conduit. I'm a vector for other people's wrong opinions.
0: I bet that most podcasters, streamers, YouTubers do not do vocal warm ups, actually.
1: You're saying that we're a cut above, we're yes. next level.
0: We hold ourselves to a higher standard.
1: <laughs> we want to give our listeners the best possible experience. Which is not true of most podcasters, <laughs> streamers, et cetera. Only us, exclusive to MSB, is the desire to I was give our listeners a, a product they enjoy.
0: I was going to joke that we're more vain, but I don't actually think that's true. I think most people who do this kind of thing, you kind of have to be you vain. Have to,
1: you have to be vain, yeah. To
0: think that what you have to say is <laughs> like worth people's time.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Astonishing! It works as well as it does. <laughs> Although I think that about most biology, frankly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, one is always struck by the um, the dichotomy between human like frailty and resilience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's really short, and I was like, well, there's not a lot that happens.
1: <laughs> yep. Returning for a moment to what I was saying about Cole and role models. On the surface level, there are a lot of points of similarity between Cole and Mancha. They both really want to pilot the Gundam. They both like Nina. Maybe that's it, actually. It's not that many. But they're important ones, and given what little we know of Ko's personality, it's basically all we got to go on for him.
0: Although there has been some you know jumping and using the jets to move about the feel of the mobile suit combat in this show is much more like infantry combat than it is like planes in particular because they're not fighting in space. Yeah. I think the the planes metaphor works better in space and on earth the infantry metaphor actually is more apt.
1: And the Albion's patch is like a sword with wings, which is a very very common motif or like airborne troops in the real world.